Get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast. You can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level. Get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast. You can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Kobe Cole. In my recent Jermaine Dupree and Swiss Beats podcast, I mentioned to them this Quincy documentary on uh, Netflix and what an amazing life the great Quincy Jones continues to have. Now, right now, Quincy is 85 years old. He's got 70 plus years in entertainment business. Let that sink in for a minute. And not just music. He's in movies. He's in publishing. I mean, it's just so many areas that Quincy Jones has just had his hands in over the last 70 years. He's pretty much, you know, touched all facets of the entertainment industry. Every genre of music as well. He's got 79 Grammy nominations, 27 wins, seven Academy Award nominations, a Tony, an Emmy. He's almost an EGOT club member. Now, there are only 15 people historically that have won an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. He's close. He produced one of the biggest albums in music history, Thriller, from Michael Jackson. After watching this documentary, I was really prompted to do a podcast about him and share my one and only Quincy Jones interview. Like you said, I lived a different lives. I feel like I've lived 20 lives, you know. And after the brain operations, you know, when I didn't think I was going to live, I was, I was blessed enough to make it. So I thank God every day. And like Cosby says to me all the time, he said, man, you've got nothing to worry about. You're playing with house money anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Now, I've interviewed a lot of amazing people. But there was this random night in 1999 where I got a chance to interview this icon. And I remember it vividly because... He didn't show up with an entourage. He came with one person. He had no security. He just showed up to the radio station and we did this interview. As the years go on, I come across a lot of people who really don't know that Quincy Jones is responsible for just music, not just black music. I mean, he touched it all. A black man born during the Depression is the most accomplished producer in music history. One quote that stood out in his documentary, if you haven't viewed yet, you must view after you listen to this podcast. He said this, I had no control over where I lived, no control over my sick mother. I couldn't control angry whites who still called me a nigga when they caught me alone in the street. But music was the one thing I could control. It was the one thing that offered me freedom. Quincy has given his life to his freedom, and at 85, he has not slowed down. The reality of it is, if you lived 82 years old, mm -hmm. you'd have 30,000 days, man. This is not speculation. Wow. That's it. You know, that's facts. This is the backstory of Quincy Jones, a.k.a. the dude, the legend, a human treasure. Quincy Delight Jones Jr. was born on March 14, 1933, on the south side of Chicago to his mother, Sarah Francis, who was a bank officer and apartment complex manager, and his father, Quincy Jones Sr., who was a semi-professional baseball player and carpenter from Kentucky. His paternal grandmother was an ex-slave. He was introduced to music by his mother, who would sing gospel songs. His next-door neighbor, Lucy Jackson, had a piano and would play it. A five-year-old Quincy would be listening through the walls, eventually allowed to go over to Miss Lucy's house and play. 
The South Side of Chicago was nothing nice at that time. In his documentary, he talks with Dr. Dre about being surrounded by gangsters and even wanting to be a gangster. Uh, at five or seven or something, he talked about getting knife through his hand with someone pinning it against the wall, a knife through his hand against the wall. Couldn't imagine going through something like that at that age. So in addition to navigating a rough and tumble Chicago during the Depression, his mother was also a schizophrenic and eventually put into a mental institution. Losing his mother early on would factor in his life and factor in his work ethic and factor into so many things. And again, in the Quincy documentary, he talks about that. His father would eventually divorce his mother, marry another woman, and they relocated halfway across the country to Washington, the state of Washington and Seattle. The lifelong lesson he would learn from his dad, though, was working hard. It's almost like an obsession to work harder than everybody else. As we go further into this podcast, you will hear this play out. It was in the great Northwest where a young Quincy would start his musical journey. In high school, he would learn how to play the trumpet. But also one important job that was a precursor to where he would arrive on the world stage. He would learn how to arrange music. At 14, he would play in his first band. He would admire a young artist who relocated from Florida, who was 16 at the time, and played at a popular club in Seattle. Quincy would introduce himself to this young man. His name was Ray Charles. If you saw the movie Ray, they reenact uh, a scene of a young Quincy Jones meeting a young Ray Charles. He was inspired by the fact that Ray was blind and overcame that to become a really good musician and artist. Upon his high school graduation, he would get a scholarship to the University of Seattle and play in the band. And he would be a music major. And one of his classmates was actor-director Clint Eastwood. After a year at the University of Seattle, he transferred to the prestigious Berklee School of Music in Boston. While a student at Berklee, fate would change the course of his life. He was playing at a local bar with some other jazz musicians when he would get an offer to be the trumpeter, arranger, and pianist for the legendary Lionel Hampton. Now, I personally have a deep connection to jazz. It's part of my family lineage. My uncle is the legendary jazz pianist, McCoy Tyner. So I was educated on jazz very early, and he appreciated my knowledge and respect for jazz when we did this interview. Man, thank you for being a young brother, man, that understands what the jazz thing is about, too. Okay. I really appreciate that. Oh, no problem. That's, hey, that's, why, that's how I grew up. That's what, that was given McCoy, to me. McCoy Tyner, too, for, for being uh, your relative. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, vice versa. <laughs> I knew Quincy's story, and it kind of reminded me of my Uncle McCoy. They're very similar. They both got started at a very young age and were off into the world as teens. Quite inspiring considering that time in the world and that time, what it meant to be a black man uh, traveling the world. We talked about his humble beginnings and how he was able to get work with all these legends. It's like waiting for the call because we were talking about this the other day. In our business, you can't call up uh, Basie or, or anybody, uh, Frank Sinatra or anybody else you work with, or Danny Washington, Servon, Shaka, whatever, and say, I'm in the, just got in the business and I'm Quincy Jones and I, I'd like to work with you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. You have to wait for their call. Right. And when I look back, you know, I'm just amazed at how many times that I got that call over the past, what, 50 years or whatever it was. And that's, that's really what it's all about. And I feel blessed, really. I mean, I don't take it for granted at all. Because it's, uh, the odds against it being the other way, those, that, that's the probability of it not happening, you know, getting right. that call. But the calls kept coming, and um, 
guess it depends on the last thing you do. And it was a diversified uh, flow of calls from everybody from, <laughs> you know, Chuck Willis to Sonny Stitt to whatever, Ray Charles. We, we were raised together, but I mean, just the whole, the whole nine yards, you know. Coming up on the Backstory Podcast, Quincy Jones produces the biggest selling album of all time. We didn't have time to think about it. They're going to like this or this is going to be great or anything. So we had to finish. We, said, we got too much to finish the record. It was that simple. Okay. And you go with your belly button and let the uh, creator do the work. That's who does it all anyway. So you see Will Smith uh, when he's uh, uh, the first year on the show, you know, not even know where the camera is. You see him go from that, you know, to, mm -hmm. to what he's doing now. It's, um, it's, it's great it's, to see that. It's man. fascinating. It's Oprah, too, you know. She got the color purple, you know. She, she tore it up, man. But, you know, the people are ready, though. Mm -hmm. You know, they got their stuff together. And they just get that shot and, and develop it and pay attention and don't get satisfied with just a little bit of growth. You know? mm -hmm. And they ask for a lot of themselves, you know. The one thing that you'll hear in this interview, and you see it in this documentary, Quincy does a lot of name dropping, but he can because he knows everybody, and that's no exaggeration. Again, in the documentary, his phone is connected to a who's who in business and entertainment. So you're listening to the Backstory Podcast of Quincy Jones. So a young Quincy travels the world touring with Lionel Hampton. He loved touring Europe because as a black man, he was treated differently. While touring with Hampton, he would become a really good composer and arranger. He would work on projects with Sarah Vaughn, Dinah Washington, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, and of course his good friend Ray Charles, who was becoming a star in his own right. He would go back and forth from Europe to the States, and at some point took a temporary job in the band of a TV show that was broadcasting from New York City. He backed up a young Elvis Presley on this show. He would eventually go on tour with Dizzy Gillespie. Then, in 1957, he settled in Paris to study composition and theory with the great Nadia Boulanger and Oliver Messiaen. He would eventually form his own band. After getting his world-class music education, he would eventually form his own band. They were good, audiences loved them, but it was a financial disaster, and they dissolved, leaving Quincy stuck in Europe and broke. The tour with this band put him in debt for almost $145,000, which would be like millions today. He would come back to the States with all this experience under his belt. So the next logical move was a record executive. It also helped that he had a friend at Mercury Records who kind of bailed him out financially and offered him a job. This is where he would learn about the music business and he started to think beyond jazz. We talked about that transition, which would pay major dividends over his career. The funny part about it is uh, we did that when we were 13 or 14. I mean, we had that coming up in Seattle. Uh, I was, when I was 14, I came up with Ray Charles who was 16 in Seattle during the war. We had to play everything. Mm -hmm. We had to play rhythm and blues and funk and, 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 and bebop, shottishes, classical music, everything. So it wasn't a stretch. It wasn't a stretch. All you have to do is just be aware, just wake up every day and be aware of the stimuli that's around you. And just go do your thing. It's not, I, I think once you, when you study the full range of music, and I, I did from, you know, from classical to all of our music, you, you, you're fearless, you know, you don't, nothing, there's nothing to be afraid of, you know, you feel, if you just let your soul go with the vibe of where you're going, it's not, it's not a stretch at all. In 1961, Quincy would become a vice president at Mercury Records. He was the first African-American to ever hold this high of a position at a major record label. Now, Quincy was mainly a jazz artist at that time with his background. 
And at Mercury, it was his first real expansion out of that genre. He was tasked with making pop music. That was what would make the most money. He struggled at first with this transition and went through countless demos until he found a 16-year-old girl named Leslie Gore from New Jersey. Her first single, It's My Party, was a number one record. She would go on to have several other big singles, and Quincy proved he could do other music besides jazz. Then in 1964, he gets the call of a lifetime. Frank Sinatra was a fan of what he did with Count Basie and asked Quincy to arrange his next album, which was called It Might As Well Be Swing. This featured the song Fly Me To The Moon. Quincy was 29 years old. When astronauts first reached the moon in 1969, they played that song. It was mind-blowing for Quincy. Quincy and Frank had instant chemistry. Frank was a huge star in America at that time. So this collaboration with Quincy ended up changing his life. He would go on tour with Frank. Of course, in America at that time, there was lots of segregation, and black artists and musicians couldn't stay at the hotels where they would perform. Frank Sinatra stood up for African-American artists and used his power and influence to change all of that by leveraging his appearances. He would famously make points to the power brokers that if you want Frank, you got to treat the black musicians with respect and dignity. Frank and Quincy would become friends. And actually, in his documentary, Quincy talks about just that world that he went into when he started hanging out with uh, Frank Sinatra. But more importantly, Quincy helped change the trajectory of Sinatra's career. He gave him a new sound and vibe. I recommend the HBO documentary about Frank Sinatra. It's like four hours long, but it's fascinating. It takes you through the ups and downs of his career. And his time working with Quincy Jones was a game changer. And he was very fond of Quincy and what Quincy did for his career. So after touring with Frank, Quincy wanted to expand his horizons to scoring films. At that time, there were no African-Americans scoring films. He faced producers that didn't feel a black man could write for a white actor in film. And they would actually say that publicly. That door was shut. Quincy, though, the workaholic, would move out to the West Coast and dedicate himself to learning how to score and burst that door wide open. His first movie score was for legendary movie director Sidney Lumet's The Pawn Broker. Sidney really gave him his first big break, and they have a deep connection. I'll tell you more about that later in the podcast. Quincy's scores were unlike anything people had ever heard at that time. Gritty beats, soulful, funky would be adjectives to describe his work. He would go on to score over 40 films and TV shows, including the iconic movie In Cold Blood, The Outer Towners, In the Heat of the Night, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, the original Italian job. He did themes for a bunch of TV shows, the Sanford and Son theme Quincy Jones did. And in the 70s, the miniseries for Roots, he did the music for that. Keep this in mind, Quincy went from being questioned whether he could do it or not to being the most in-demand composer in Hollywood. He would break glass ceilings for African-Americans. His goal was to break out of the categories that many black artists were put in. He would get several Oscar nominations and he would actually score the Oscars. He was the busiest man in show business until he almost lost it all. Yeah, he almost died. In 1974, he had a brain aneurysm. They gave him a one in 100 chance to live. He had two surgeries. It had a profound effect on him moving forward. And we discussed this. 
After the brain operations, you know, when I didn't think I was going to live, I was, was blessed enough to make it, so I thank God every day. And like Cosby says to me all the time, he said, man, you've got nothing to worry about. You're playing with house money anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true, because I can't make any more calls there. <laughs> right. That's enough for blessings, so. So the, so the doctor told you to slow down, but right right after you had your brain operation, have you slowed down? No. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm about to ask to you. Do. It's really hard to do, you know, because the, 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 the brain operation also was a wake-up call that says, hey, man, you don't have forever. Here's an interesting fact about Quincy's brush with death. His friends and family didn't think he would make it, so they actually planned a memorial service for him while he was still alive. And not only did he make it, he attended his own memorial service. Richard Pryor, Sarah Vaughn, Sidney Poitier, Marvin Gaye were all there. Yes, that's a true story. So we're in the mid-'70s, which was another turning point musically for Quincy. He started his transition to R&B, and one of the first groups he worked with was the Brothers Johnson. It was three brothers and a cousin from L.A. who had a band called Johnson. They would back up the Supremes and Bobby Womack and Billy Preston, and Quincy at some point hired them to work on his 1975 album Mellow Madness, which led to a tour, and Quincy agreed to produce a few albums, and he delivered them three number one singles in a three-year period that dominated black radio, but also would be top ten pop records. Songs like I'll Be Good to You, Strawberry Letter 23, and Stomp. Q put his stamp on these brothers, and it told the world that Quincy was a force in black music and what was happening at that time. It was the middle and end of disco. Black music in the 70s in general was dominating. Then an old friend of Quincy, the man who gave him his first movie scoring job, Sidney Lament, asked him to score a black remake of The Wizard of Oz based on the hit Broadway play The Wiz. This movie would feature Diana Ross, who was still a major solo star, and Michael Jackson, two iconic black Motown artists. One who was nearing the end of her time with Motown and the other, Michael, who, with his brothers, the Jacksons, recently moved over to Epic Records, where they renewed their success as they moved into adulthood. The Wiz featured a who's who of black Hollywood at the time. In addition to Ross and Jackson, Richard Pryor was in this movie, Lena Horne, Mabel King. Mabel King was the mother on what's happening for those who don't know who Mabel King is. They were a part of the cast and it was just brilliant. It was one of the most expensive movie musicals ever made because of the elaborate sets using the iconic New York City as the backdrop. It cost $24 million, which at that time would be $100 million today, but was considered a flop at the box office. Eventually, it would become a cult favorite, especially in black America. It was during the filming of this movie where a partnership would form and history would be made. Quincy Jones actually appeared in the movie. There's this scene where he's uh, actually in front of the World Trade Center, but that's just the set, the way they had it set up. And he was wearing gold and he was playing the piano, but he scored the movie. And by the way, the soundtrack to the play in the movie was phenomenal. And here's a little information you may not know. Some of the original music for The Wiz was actually written by Luther Vandross. So anyway, this was Michael Jackson's first major motion picture. It was terrific. It's something I always wanted to do. And uh, it was a lot of fun working with all the greats, Sidney Lumet, Quincy Jones. Coming up on the Backstory Podcast, Quincy and Michael will work together, and it was magical. So I had no idea that many people would like it, though. Mm-hmm. But we had an album out there that had done 10 million albums, which is huge at the time. In oh, off the wall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was, was a classic. trying to catch up with that baby. Right. right. Quincy Jones is in the house, got a brand new album out. It's called Quincy Jones from Q with Love. 
Now, Quincy, explain the concept behind this album. This is a... Uh, uh, I started out with a, a collection of private uh, uh, tape that I used to carry around on the road, so I didn't have a lot of up-tempo songs on it. With all the artists that I'd worked with, produced, arranged, or written, or whatever. And uh, it went all the way back to 66, you know, and we did some of the Sinatra stuff. It was Aretha Franklin, 72. We got Michael Jackson, some stuff from couple of things from Thriller, and Luther Pandros is on there, R. Kelly, Brian McKnight, Take Six, Tamia, uh, Elder Barge, Barry White. I mean, it's just it does non-stop itself. And it's, it was really my collection of, uh, there's four new songs we just recorded, but before I took the tape around, just for my own enjoyment, then I gave a party for Oprah one night for her 40th birthday years ago, and we printed up the thing, and a picture on it and everything else, and then gave it off to her friends, and uh they came back, they were asking for 10 and 20 copies of it for their kids and aunts and everything else. Mm-hmm. Like that was, it was overwhelming. And so they said, give it up, you know, and let it out the bag, you know, and, and, and let, that, let everybody else hear it. One of your homework assignments from this podcast is to check out the 1999 album from Q with Love. The clips that I'm sharing are from an interview we did around the release of that album. You're listening to the backstory of Quincy Jones. This is Colby Kolb. So when we last left off, Quincy was working on the Wiz motion picture with Michael Jackson, who you heard me play the clip earlier, was honored to be working with Quincy. This was a very interesting time for Michael Jackson. He would make a decision that would change the trajectory of his life and his career. His father, Joe Jackson, had gotten them a really good deal at Epic Records. So the Jackson Five were getting screwed by Motown Records financially. When they made all of those hits for Motown, they were only getting a 2.8% royalty. They sold millions of albums for Motown, and the Epic deal was a 20% royalty, which was way more favorable, obviously, financially to the Jackson family. They would leave Brother Jermaine at Motown and call themselves the Jacksons because Barry Gordy said he owned the Jackson Five. They released four epic albums, and those albums had mediocre success. They had a few hit singles, but nothing like when they were the Jackson 5. The man that gave the Jacksons their groundbreaking deal at Epic was actually considered a fool. They were on a decline, which is why Barry Gordy didn't want to offer them a favorable deal and let them go. But this man at Epic saw the potential in Michael Jackson as a solo artist, and that was the real reason they got such a sweet deal. He played long ball, and boy, he was right. Michael tired of his father, and at 21, fired him. While working with Quincy during the filming of The Wiz, he asked for advice on who should produce his next solo album. He had done four of the solo projects on Motown, but this was his first adult solo project, and he was on his own, and he wanted to make sure it was right. Quincy was watching him closely during the filming of The Wiz and appreciated Michael's work ethic and dedication to details and suggested that he should produce the album. Quincy saw something amazing in Michael and knew he had the potential to be something the world would never expect. Michael agreed to work with him and Quincy put together an A-team of writers and musicians and they went to work on Off the Wall. In fact, one of the writers of a lot of his music was Rod Temperton. Rod Temperton wrote for a group called Heat Wave. This guy was just a really good writer. So they go in to record Off the Wall. The album was the perfect storm of everything that Q had learned musically up until that point. Remember, Quincy had an A-team of writers and musicians, and he had the best equipment money could buy. And we'll talk about technology in a minute. He experimented with sounds and instruments. It was quite a creative storm. Michael was living in New York City, 
while filming The Wiz, and he would hit the clubs and experience the R&B, hip-hop, and dance vibe of the city. New York in the 70s was just a melting pot of just amazing music, and Michael Jackson, away from his Midwest roots, just kind of absorbed all of that, mainly from hanging out at the Fame Club Studio 54, which was sort of like pop culture central at that time. He would bring that energy back to the studio, and Michael and Quincy had a lot of goosebump moments recording off the wall, and man, were they right. The album was historic. It was the biggest selling black album up until that point, led by Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, Rock With You, and Off The Wall, and She's Out Of My Life. The album would go on to sell 20 million copies worldwide. Michael would win several American Music Awards, Billboard Awards, but he only won one Grammy. And that one Grammy annoyed Michael Jackson. He expected the album to do better. What a perfectionist, right? He didn't appreciate the snub at the Grammys, and he and Quincy would go into the studio to work on the follow-up album, Thriller. And we talked about the expectations of Thriller. And did he know this would be an album of all time? I was, we were just, we had two months to do an album. We did Thriller in two months. and uh, we Two months? Trying, yep. Wow. Because we, we got hung up in the E.T. storybook, and we had two months of it was spent on that, and so we only had two months left. And uh, we were just trying to catch up with the numbers on, uh, as, as you know, there's no way really to do that, to say we're going to make an album that does so-and-so. That's ridiculous, you know. Right, You just right. got to do an album, and then hopefully it moves you, you get goosebumps, and let, hopefully what you like, a lot of other people do too. I had no idea that many people like it, though. Mm -hmm. But we had an album out there that had done 10 million albums, which is huge at the time. In, oh, in off the wall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was a classic. We were trying to catch up with that baby. You know? Right. <laughs> and so we, and number one, we didn't have time to think about it. They're going to like this. Is this going to be great or anything? So we had to finish. We, said, we got too much to finish the record. It was that simple. Okay. And you go with your belly button and let the uh, creator do the work. That's who does it all anyway. That divine thing I believe in with the bottom of my heart. And I know that's what makes it happen, you know. Quincy listened to over 600 songs with his team before deciding on the 12 songs on the album. Now, he was like a father figure to Michael, which really helped fuel their relationship. It was really the perfect partnership. Q would call him Smelly because when Michael liked something, he would call it Smelly Jelly. Thriller would go on to sell 66 million albums worldwide, and Michael was the biggest pop culture figure in the world. Now everybody knows about Off the Wall and Thriller. I was a kid when both of those albums came out. Now keep in mind, there was no internet or no social media, but the impact one man would have worldwide is just something I don't think we'll ever see again, even with the internet and social media. I mentioned how... Off the Wall was sort of like a coming out party for Quincy Jones' musical education. Again, best equipment, best musicians, best writers. And the technology was a factor as well. And he's always been a leader in adapting to technology. And we discussed it. It seems like you keep reinventing yourself into different things, and which I guess is a testament to anybody who is trying to be in this music industry. How have you adapted to um, technology? Because when you started... Things were totally different than the way it is now. I mean, how did you adapt to the technology of making music? Well, yeah, we started with 78 records, you know. If you want to do a multi-track, you had to do cell sync. We'd sit there with a two-track and, a, and, a, and a, a mono's track. It would take us four hours to do one overdub, whether you want to dub, double voice. Mm -hmm. But I was also lucky that, you know, when I, I was a vice president of Phillips and Mercury at one point. 
And we used to go to Eindhoven Holland, where the experimental laboratories, they, they showed us the very first audio cassette mm -hmm. ever made in 1962. They also showed us a dime-thin laser beam video disc, which wow. they said, we won't be able to put this out for 35 years. Well, wow. that's right. You know, JVC and Pioneer had it out. Now, Victor had a hard time with it, and so did MCA when it was Disco Vision. Uh, uh, also, in 1953, Leo Fender brought us the first Fender bass ever made mm -hmm. to Monk Montgomery. We were getting ready to go to Europe with Lionel Hampton. So without that instrument and a guitar, there would be no rock and roll. Because that's a, almost the foundation of rock and roll. That's when it changed. So we were the first there and the first with, with uh, the synthesizer. The, the synthesizer on Ironside was the very first synthesizer the world ever heard. You know? Wow. And before Walter Carlos, and, and you know, so I trust I trust the technology implicitly. We use SSL boards in 1974 and 75. Those computerized mixtures. Mm -hmm. So you know, you just keep watching. No matter what the the technology is, they're going to have to have a song. They're going to have to have a story. It's going to have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Not necessarily in that order. And with the story structure, song structure, whatever, it's all it's all the same. Now keep in mind, off the wall was a phenomenal album and a phenomenal success. But Michael was actually disappointed with the accolades, specifically the Grammys, where he had only won one Grammy. Remember what I said about Off the Wall, which was a phenomenal album. And Michael was disappointed with the accolades, especially the Grammys, where he only won one. Now it's Thriller. And Thriller was an instant hit. And this time around, he won eight American Music Awards and a record-breaking eight Grammy Awards. He actually competed with himself for Song of the Year. It was Beat It versus Billie Jean. That doesn't really happen that often. Of course, Beat It won that. He obviously won Album of the Year. He even won Rock Vocal Performance for Beat It. He competed with himself in the Best R&B category. It was Billie Jean versus Wannabe Starting Something, and Billie Jean won that. It was definitely a special moment for Quincy Jones as well, who received the Grammy for Producer of the Year in 82 and came back in 1984 as Co-Producer of the Year with Michael Jackson. It was just a phenomenal moment in history and a phenomenal moment in um, music history. In 1985, after the American Music Awards, Quincy put together a massive collection of musical talent from all genres to record We Are the World, a song that would help raise funds to bring awareness to famine relief in Ethiopia. The song and album sold 20 million copies and to date has raised over $63 million. Only Quincy could bring so much talent together in such a short time and deliver a massive hit song. Remember what I said about him being able to get anybody on the phone and be able to get anybody to do something. There's only one person that can do that, and that's Quincy Jones. Quincy was the most powerful person in the music business, hands down. He started his own label, Quest Records, in 1980 after the success of Off the Wall. The first song he released is one of the dopest R&B songs like ever, and it was from a jazz artist, George Benson. It was called Gimme the Night. That song is timeless. Urban, urban AC radio stations still play that song. Q had a magic touch. He would also work on other projects while working with Michael, including his own compilation albums. And on each album, he would introduce a new singer that would go on to have their own hits. In 1981, on his Quest label, he released the classic album, The Dude, which featured the dance track, I Know Carita. But he also introduced two singers on this album. One, a lady from Harlem with a beautiful, soft voice named Patty Austin, and another, a young brother from Ohio named James Ingram. They were featured all over the dude, and Ingram shined on a song called Just Once and another song called 100 Ways. Two big hits off the album. 
You've been working with him for, for many years. Yeah, and well, he's... We, we first did his first record, you know. Somebody sent me a, a demo tape uh, of a great song, and it was just once. And I said, yeah, the song is great, but man, who's the singer? They said, that's not a singer, man. That's a piano player that, that works for the Coasters with Ray Charles. I said, you want to bet? <laughs> and I called James, and he said the same thing. He said, my voice got whiskey in it. I said, well, that's just what I like about it. <laughs> don't, don't change it. Don't try to smooth it out. Right. We made a lot of great records together, man. He's, he's something. No doubt. It was also at this time that Quincy got into producing movies, and because of who he was, he could command the best talent. You heard him earlier talking about having only two months to record Thriller because he was working with the great Steven Spielberg on the E.T. storybook in which Michael Jackson was narrating. Now, at that time, Spielberg was known for big-budget supernatural movies like Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Close Encounters, um, and one of the biggest movies ever, E.T., Quincy corralled him to do a film version of Alice Walker's best-selling book, Color Purple. He really wanted to tell this story on film, but also share the great music from that era. But keep in mind about this time in America, because this was a major motion picture. It was a huge budget and an all-black cast. The lead was an unknown actress-comedian named Whoopi Goldberg. That kind of movie is never made, much less with a director of the caliber of a Steven Spielberg. Steven had never done anything like this before and was very reluctant. But Quincy told him this movie wasn't about race. It was about humanity and famously told him you didn't have to go to Mars to make E.T. And of course, Steven Spielberg was like, OK, I'll make the movie. Another Quincy Jones discovery that he cast in the film was a local talk show host in Chicago. Quincy Jones discovered me for the color. Thank you. Yeah, her. One day while casting The Color Purple, Quincy had to go to Chicago. He caught the red eye and got to his hotel. It was earlier in the morning and he couldn't sleep and he turns on the TV and he sees Oprah Winfrey. This was before she was syndicated nationally. It was a random moment, but that changed the trajectory of Oprah's life and career. She was a talk show host, not an actress. And the next thing you know, she had a standout role in a major motion picture. The movie would go on to break box office records, soaring past the 140 million mark, which today would probably be about half a billion. The Color Purple received 11 Academy Award nominations, and these two unknown actresses, Whippy and Oprah, both were nominated for Oscars. Again, Quincy had the vision and saw what it was going to be and put it together. And this was and this was the reaction. I mean, he's just an amazing human being. In 1989, Quincy would release another compilation album called Back on the Block. This album features some of the biggest names in music history, but also the biggest names at that time from jazz to hip hop. If you've never listened to this album, you got to do so. So that's another homework assignment. It's magnificent how he arranged all these voices and sounds from a Sarah Vaughn to a Dizzy Gillespie to a Luther Vandross to a Big Daddy Kane, Ice-T and Ray Charles. Yes, all of that together. He's just some magician putting this stuff together. Remember what I said about every album he would introduce a new artist. This time around, it was a 12-year-old kid named Tevin Campbell who would sing a song called Tomorrow. This would be a launching path for Tevin's solo career. Another standout timeless song on this album was a ballad called The Secret Garden. It was sort of the Super Bowl of an R&B slow jam featuring Barry White, Elder Barge, Albie Shore, and James Ingram. Sort of like the past the almost past, the current, and the future. It was just an amazing song. In 1995, he did it again. 
he released an album called The Juke Joint. And again, he found a way to incorporate an array of voices. The intro alone features over 29 artists, including Stevie Wonder, Miles Davis, Brandy, Funkmaster Flex, Kid Capri, Chaka Khan, Sarah Vaughn, and even Shaquille O'Neal. Q is the master of arranging. Again, Juke Joint, you should listen to it. Now that you got all these services where you can stream, you can just pull these albums up and listen to them. They're just really amazing. So who did he introduce on the Juke Joint album? He introduced an 18-year-old Canadian singer with a big, beautiful voice. Uh, Tamia was was a was a heck of a find, and and when you put you put a move in my heart out, I mean, people were like floored with her performance. She was like 18 and 19 when you that's did right. it. I love that. That's that. That's part of the fun in this business. So, Tamia, you put a move on my heart. Is still a timeless record, and we talked about those projects. You've also put together, to me, two classic albums exhibiting what you say, Back on the Block and uh, The Juke Joint, which when I first heard Back on the Block, I was floored how you can combine hip-hop artists. It was just, I mean, to me, it was just amazing how you could put all those artists together and fit them in because, you know, I was at the time thinking, all right, well, those are two separate art forms and it, it, there was no way that you could mix, but then you, you just... I don't know how, it's like magic how you did that we, and make it title, sound hip. On the title track, we had uh, African music, we had gospel, we had hip-hop, we had bebop. Everything was on, on gospel. Everything was on the same side. And it was all from the same family. You know, so it's just understanding what the core is all about. And it's uh, all comes from between Africa and the black church. You know, that's, mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. the core. And then blues came out of the church. I mean, directly out of the church. And jazz came from that. And But jazz positioned itself to eat everything in its path, you know, by osmosis almost. And so jazz has always been like our classical music because as a receptacle, it's been able to hold more of a growth of music than any other kind of music. And that's why when you put on Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, it's at 30 years old, it sounds like it was made yesterday. and never will sound old. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that's our classical music for the world. For pop music, jazz is the classical music. And wow. that's the stuff that, that, that's the, the, the kind of firmness, you know. He worked with so many artists over his 70 years from all genres. Now, of all the artists that you've worked with, who would you say would be the favorite, your favorite artist working with that you that you feel as though that you have the most connection with? And I mean, if it's Michael Jackson, that's great. But is it someone beyond I Michael have, Jackson? I have seven kids. I love all of them. Mm-hmm. And there's no way in the world I could separate between, you know, with, 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 with Aretha Franklin mm-hmm. and Michael and James Ingram and Brian Knight and Luther. I mean, it's impossible. <laughs> it's just like your menu. I mean, just listening like to menu. you say all that in Would one you breath. You can give sweet potatoes up for black eyed peas? No. <laughs> <laughs> that and... <laughs> Collards and mustards and turnips together. (laughs) Q would also venture into TV producing. Again, he had an eye for talent, for putting the right people together. He saw Will Smith, who at the time was the Fresh Prince, uh, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. He was an artist. Um, And he decided to team him up with a label exec that he had worked with named Benny Medina to tell Benny's life story of coming from humble roots to live in the wealthy Bel Air section of L.A. And they created the very popular Fresh Prince of Bel Air show. He also was responsible for In the House, which was LL Cool J's first TV show and the sketch comedy show that kind of rivals SNL, but with a hipper vibe, Mad TV on Fox. Q also jumped into publishing. At that time in the early 90s for Urban Culture, they were sort of like the write-on magazine types, 
Um, and then for hip hop, it was like the source. Quincy wanted to do a Rolling Stones magazine, but for black youth culture. It would be a magazine that would break records and alter the careers of several artists and influence the culture. That magazine was Vibe. Uh, at that time, Steve Ross had just put the two companies together, Time and Warner, and he said, Q, help me with the with the synergy. You know, they keep busting him because the synergy that he said would happen between Time and Warner Communications wasn't happening. He said, go in into all of the the areas of, of the company and blow it and pull it together. I mean, the, the, the sides of it that you feel like there's a hole. And I, I knew there was a need for a magazine like that. Now, the 2,000 submissions... Two magazines got picked. One was Martha mm-hmm. Stewart's and one was mine. And I was on her show the other day. And we started the very same day. Wow. And so they, and the, both magazines blew up, you know. And so you just, you've got to go for it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just mm-hmm. the kind of thing. And I, I think uh, by studying my own craft of arranging and composing in the beginning for 28 years, that gives you a base of what to deal with, you know, of how to, how to really learn your own craft. And it applies to everything else. It applies to composition, it applies to story structure, you know, and casting and everything else. It's, it, it, after a while, if you get one thing down, it seems to be able to, it, applicable to other things, too. And uh, I find it not a stretch. Whether it's feature films or CD-ROM, we just did a thing with Harvard and Microsoft, Skip Gates, called uh, Encarta Africana which is like a 2.2 million word uh, CD-ROM. It's like a definitive black, Af- uh, black da- database. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's like a dream of W.B. Dubois. Nine years ago, he wanted to do that. They didn't have the technology to hold it. And Skip picked up this dream, and he couldn't get anybody to finance it. So we financed it and uh, got involved in the, in the demo of it and the production of it. And uh, it's, just, it's, 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 it's blowing up. But it was number five in Barnes & Noble last week, and it isn't even out yet. As you can hear through these interviews, through this podcast, that Quincy Jones is just a unique person. He's not afraid to try new things, not afraid to bring different people together to try things that may be outside of their comfort zone. He was in all these interesting circles, but was not afraid to be a black man and express his activism. Um, we talked a little bit about him and some of the older artists talking with some of the rappers during Back on the Block, and they were just talking about racism. It's just he's not afraid to tell you the real. And if you look at his Quincy documentary, he talks about a lot of that. Quincy is someone who never sits still. In his documentary, it's exhausting watching how this 85-year-old man works. In fact, his son even says, I can't even keep up with my dad. He seems to be always working on something. And when we did this interview, we talked about what he was working on at that time and peep how much he had going on. What are some other things that you're going to get into? Well, we finished the the, uh, uh, the Encarta Africana, which will be an ongoing thing. It'll be a book, too, and uh, I've got some other things. I'm working on a, a Broadway show now on so Sammy Davis, uh, Sammy Davis's life, you know, all sides of all facets of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're doing uh, uh, some films. You know, we got a film coming out that we're working with the Hughes Brothers and Robert De Niro. Um... A lot of good stuff, you know, doing Ale- Alexander Pushkin epic, you know, with Neil Neil's Foreman. Mm-hmm. A lot of things we wanted to do for a long time. Things that mean a lot to us, but I think it's still a, a strong entertainment and enlightening at the same time. And uh, uh, Sp- Steven Spielberg and I will be producing the uh, Millennium with, uh, with Hillary Clinton for the 31st of December, and that's going to be a big job. Wow, that's, really? That's not like the inauguration. We did the inauguration, too, but this mm-hmm. is this is serious. Now, there's three zeros behind that number. This wow. Time. And so, <laughs> as, as uh, the First Lady says, uh, uh, let's talk about the m- magic of the millennium moment. And from 11.30 to 12.30, it's going to be off the hook. Wow. We really got to do it, you know. So, 
he does these big events too. So you heard him talking about working with Hillary Clinton on the millennium event, right? The 1999 into 2000. He's had so many historical moments like that where he has been called upon to produce. Uh, during the filming of the Quincy documentary, he was working on the launch of the African American Museum in Washington, D.C. Only Quincy Jones commands the respect of everyone. And when he calls you, you pick up and you respond. I mean, there's just not nobody that has a bad word to say about the man. And again, there's several scenes in this documentary where he's randomly asking several power players just to get them on the phone. I'm really not sure there's anyone else who could pull this kind of stuff off other than Quincy. And he's a mentor to producers today. If you checked out my Swiss Beats and my Jermaine Dupri podcast, we discuss his influence on them. Uh, one question is, how do you feel about a lot of new guys, a new Jack producers, receiving these large uh, label deals and this crazy amount of money to run these labels versus guys like you who were like pioneers who didn't, who probably didn't receive the abundance of money that they received and uh, a lot of the credit that they get? Well, that's true, but more power to them. And most of them, my friends, and I, I do as much as I can to help with Puffy and, and Jermaine and, 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 and uh, Andre and all of them because they're my homies, you know. Okay. You know, that's that's the whole point. That's what you work your buns off for, man, to so it makes it better for the next person. People did that for me, too, basically and next time. And people did that for me. They put me on their shoulders, you know, and that's what it's all about. That's okay. Quincy has been married three times and has seven children. In this documentary, he talked at length about his relationship failures. But honestly, for what he has done in this world, it would be almost impossible to have a long-term successful relationship. He loves his kids unconditionally, and they're all very close. He has a certain passion for time in regards to the life we live. He uses every second of time he gets and has a philosophy about it. The reality of it is, if you lived to 82 years old, mm-hmm. you'd have 30,000 days, man. This is not speculation. Wow. That's it. You know, that's facts. And a third of it you sleep, that's 10,000 days. A third of it you work, we work much more than that. That's another 10,000 days. Mm-hmm. So that out of the 82 years, starting from scratch, you have 10,000 days left to do your whatever's in at that time. And so you can take whatever your age is now and, and add the figure the years you think will be a, a quality life two times three, 65, and cut a third each off of those things. So that answer will be real clear in your mind. And neon lights, you'll, get, you'll understand the dynamics of what this, this whole life is about. You know? If there's one thing we could all learn about Quincy Jones, it's to cherish each day you get. Thank you for listening to the backstory of Quincy Jones. Special thanks to my editor, DJ One Plus Two. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, I'm going to share a candid interview that I did with Mary J. Blige. At, at some point in my life, I was I, I felt like I was next. Mm-hmm. Like, my, my girlfriend died, mm-hmm. then Aaliyah died, then the World Trade Center happened, and I was like, okay, I'm next. Thank you for listening to the Backstory Podcast. Get more of the Backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast you can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level.